Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is where we will find ourselves today. I've entitled this series, and this is going to be an annual series, year after year. I call it September in the Psalms. And uh, I'll pick out four different ones. I'm not preaching the same four each year. It's the same theme, but it is not the same Psalms. That would be pretty easy. (laughs) But uh, there's so many Psalms, and we can glean so much good from the Word of God out of the writings of the poets and of the hearts of those. It might be the sons of Asaph. It might be from David. It could be from Solomon. There's a host, the sons of Korah. There's all different authors that have written various psalms. And so today we are in Psalm 100. And um, there's two points to this today uh, that I have in, in breaking it, broken it down into. And there's five points in each. Okay, so I didn't want to scare you and say ten points. Okay, so there's two points, but five sub-points for each one. And what we know of God... What we know of God is the first point, and then how we respond to our knowledge of God. How do we respond in our knowledge of God? But first, we're going to look at what we know of God. Psalm 100 is a jewel. I mean, it is a jewel for worship in the book of Psalms. It is a literary masterpiece, singing with spiritual vitality. Through this psalm, we are called into God's presence based upon the revelation of who He is. This psalm also makes our worship an end in itself, rather than the means to another end, such as our own inspiration. The heart of worship is expressed in verse 4. Be thankful and bless His name. Be thankful and bless His name. Commentators describe Psalm 100 as a hymn that may have served in festival procession, where it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. That's in verse 4 also. Its date and author are unknown. The thought moves from praise in God's presence to praise in God's palace is how this moves through in Psalm 100. Charles Spurgeon also wrote once, he said, our happy God should be worshipped by happy people. A cheerful spirit is in keeping with his nature, his acts, and the gratitude which we should cherish for his mercies. We should be a happy people because we serve a happy God. Let's look at Psalm 100. If you have your copy of God's Word and you're able to stand, I ask you to stand with me at this time. We'll read those five verses of Psalm 100. The psalmist writes, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. So as we begin today in this short little psalm, Psalm 100, that's been many times, you've probably even heard it preached on or taught in some form or fashion throughout your life, it's very likely that you've heard Psalm 100, or at least bits and pieces that have been brought out, which are all good. And pretty much every one of these, you know, many times, You can't just pick out little pieces and teach or preach on one little bitty pieces. But I want to tell you, from Psalm 100, 
you could just about do that. Because all of it is truth based around who God is in our response to God and His character. So today, as we look at this, what we know of God. And I'm going to talk about five things we know of God. Five things we know of God. Look there in verse 1. Uh, excuse me, in verse 3. I'm going to take it a little bit out of, out of, out of uh, back and forth a little bit, okay? Verse 3. In verse 3, it says, Know that the Lord, He is God. Know that the Lord, He is God. So the first thing we know of God is, He is Lord. He is Lord. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it tells us, I quote it every single week. I quoted it in my prayer just a moment ago. I quoted it upstairs in the Sunday school class just a few moments ago because it is the way people come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's to know that He is Lord. People may know Him as Savior, but unless you know Him as Lord, you've not been saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, first step, believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, second step, third step, you shall be saved. He can't become Savior until He becomes Lord because you've not humbly submitted to Him. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. So He is Lord. The first thing we know of God is He is Lord. And this revelation of God as Lord and Creator immediately leads the psalmist to exhortation, to further exaltation, as we'll see in verse 4 from verse 3. These words remind us that a call to worship has an imperative quality. That song we sang earlier as our call to worship, we've sung it over this past year, uh, a year from now, we have sung it several times. We have sung it several times, and it's got a beautiful message all throughout it. It's a call to worship the character of God, who He is, what He's done. It's a call to worship. A call to worship. And we're not simply informing others of the attributes of God or creating a holy aura by the citation of a specific passage of Scripture. In the call to worship, the worship leader specifically calls God's people to respond to God's revelation. And God's revelation is His Word. It's amazing. Like Donald emailed me these songs Probably two weeks ago. Usually it's about how we communicate these things about two weeks in advance. we got to work through them, and then he sends them out to everybody else. But I had, I mean, even in, in doing them, I was like, yeah, those look great. You know what I mean? And, and the fact that, that, you know, you, church, requested all those hymns, and he's compiling them and putting them together as they fit into a flow of a worship service. You saw out beside there, number one most requested. It's like Casey Kasem's top 40. And so, like, um, you know, but it's new prospects, you know. But, but like, we're, we're wanting you to sing out. I want you to sing out because this is what the psalmist is writing. We know that he is the Lord. And if he is your Lord, you've got something to be thankful and grateful for. And I don't need to get too far ahead of myself. I'm going to preach my whole sermon in one point. But the worship leader calls us because it specifically calls God's people to respond to God's revelation. And the clear statement of the Israelite God being the true God is seen in how the psalmist challenges the whole earth. Right there in verse 1, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. It's a challenge to the whole earth to worship Yahweh God. 
This is not just something of the church. In Romans 1, the Bible talks about, Paul wrote about how there's, you can see that there's, it's very clear that there's a God. And although they knew God, they did not acknowledge God, and they were not what? They were not, it starts with a T, it ends with thankful. They were not thankful, okay? They weren't thankful. We need to be a thankful people. Again, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But we, we should shout joyfully and come into his presence with happy shouting. You know, Baptist churches, Southern Baptists get a bad rap. Well, it's a pretty accurate rap. We come in with some of the most somber things. Oh, come to worship God. Now, don't get me wrong. We need to be reverent. There's a difference between reverence and being a hooligan. You know what I mean? But listen, we've been saved by the grace of God. We've been redeemed from a road to hell. We should be joyful people. There should be a smile on our faces. I'm not going to hell. You know what? I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven. There should be a joyful shout. So when we sing these songs, man, it should be joyful. It should be, man, I mean, like it should be pushing the ceiling tiles up in the roof because we got so much joy in this house. We got to have joy in the house of the Lord. That's in a song that we sing, the kids sang it a few weeks ago. We should have that joy, and we should come. And in the call to worship, it's both a call to worship here and a call to procession. And its purpose is stated in the next line, the fourth instruction of the psalmist. Know by experience that Yahweh is God. Know by experience that Yahweh is God. And when we have experienced the life-giving power of God, as had been experienced by the Hebrews then... We, too, can come before him and make such bold claims that our Lord, he is God. We can make those bold claims. Our Lord, he is God, as it says there in verse 3, because we know. We know. I've talked about the, very, the difference between experience and knowing. Yeah, you can experience a lot of things. I can experience a lot of things, but do you know? Do you know? Know that He is the Lord. He is God. That's the first thing we know of God. The second thing we know of God is He made us and not us Him. He made us and not us Him. Look there in, in verse 3. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We didn't make ourselves. We didn't make Him. We didn't make ourselves. We are not self-made people. You hear that phrase? And boy, it gives opportunity for so much glory to come to self. When glory is not about self, glory is about God. There is none more glorious than God. There's no one worthy of glory than God. We have not made ourselves, nor have we made God. We've not done any, any of those things. In the beginning, we have the Word of God revealing this clear truth to us. We are not the creators, rather we are the created. We have not created a single thing in our lives, but God was and is the creator. And in this creating, God created for himself a people. He has created for himself a people. In the latter part there of verse 3, it says, We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So he makes us his people. That's what God does. In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Moses is commanded to tell the Israelites this message. In Exodus 6, 6-8, he says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. 
I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you from an outstretched, with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Seven times God says, I will, not you will. God says seven times, I will, not you will. Because we are not self-made people. And we don't make ourselves God's. God's people, God makes us his people. God makes us his people. Salvation is his work, not mine. My work is obedience to him in response to his saving grace. His work is salvation. My work is obedience. Not only does he make us his people, he makes us his sheep in his pasture. Now, I've got a lot of verses inside of John chapter 10. So if you want to go to John chapter 10, you're welcome to. But I'm going to be in a lot of various verses talking about Jesus and his sheep, knowing his voice, being in their pasture. In verses 3 and 4, John wrote this in chapter 10. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Verse 9 of chapter 10 of John. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And will go in and out and find pasture. Verses 14 through 16 of John 10. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Verse 26 and 27 of John 10. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He makes us his sheep in his pasture. He is our sheep. I mean, excuse me, we are, we are his sheep. I said that incorrectly, I apologize. We are his sheep. He is our shepherd. And we follow after him because we know his voice. We are his sheep in his pasture. The third thing we know about God is he is good. Look there in verse 5. For the Lord is good. He is good. Matthew 19, 17 the rich young ruler comes to, comes to Jesus, and he tells him, a good teacher. And Jesus comes back at him, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. No one is good but God. So, so God, Jesus is telling him, he's like, do you, what's come to your mind? What's come to your mind for you to call me good? Because there's only one that's good. But we know he is good. We know that God is good. His character proves it. His character proves it. In Exodus, when Moses saw God and God passed over him, God said this to him. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in what? Goodness and truth. 
keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What God is saying there to Moses, the Lord was considerate to the humanity of Moses, yet allowed him to view him. It wasn't his front side. The Bible says no one can look on God and live. So God basically did the greatest stiff arm in the history of mankind. And he come over the top of him. And he said, you can look at my backside. And he looked at his backside and he saw the abounding goodness and truth of God. From the mouth of God and personally, Moses got to see him. And he got to experience that goodness. Because if God wasn't good, God would say, come on, look at me. But God's a good God. And he said, I know you want to look at me. It's your desire to seek me and find me. So I'll let you see me. But just from the way I'll allow you to see me. He's abounding in goodness and truth. He is good. He's a good God. The fourth thing we know of God is his mercy is everlasting. We see that in verse 5. It's just right there in the text. I pull my point straight from it. His mercy is everlasting. In the previous verses from Exodus, we hear from our Lord's own mouth that he is merciful. See there, it says that back in Exodus. I know you, don't, you may not have your Bibles open there. That's Exodus 34, 6 and 7, by the way. He says, keeping mercy for thousands. He is a merciful God. In Psalms 136, there are 26 verses in Psalm 136. And in each and every one of those, the Lord inspired the psalmist to write, for his mercy endures forever. 26 times his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. If that's not a blessing and a message to hold on for every day of our life, it is something we need to hold to. His mercy endures forever. I know I hold to that. From the pen of Paul and from the heart of God, we hear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, But God, who is what? Rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places with christ jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in christ jesus he is rich in mercy He's abounding in goodness. He's rich in mercy. What other reason? I mean, like, listen to those things. That's a joyful shout. Give a joyful shout. We're going to give the response in a minute. Don't want to get ahead of myself. Paul was an extremely, extremely intelligent man. Extremely intelligent man. As we look back, we can see that that very, that very thought, almost word for word in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, can be looked back into Numbers chapter 14, verses 18 and 19. It's almost identical verbiage, almost the exact same way. We see Paul. We talked about it a little bit this morning when, when, when the, when in Mark, where Mark says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and he beckons back to the Old Testament. Listen, it's even happening right here. Paul beckoning back to the Old Testament. We need to be people who know the Word of God. This is a little bit off my notes, but we need to know the Word of God. So that we can call people back to God. This is where he said it here. Still true today here. Still true today here. 
You see, you and I, we must be in the word to truly grasp the fullness of God's mercy. God's mercy requires a devotion and commitment that is beyond, as the hymn says, this terrestrial ball. A devotion and commitment that speaks over and beyond this world. A devotion and commitment that shows to others they too can experience and know this God and Lord. It's what we need to have. It's a devotion and commitment we need to have. And the fifth thing we know of God is His truth is eternally without fail. Verse 5, and his truth endures to all generations. We gather from John's first epistle, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, from 1st John, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. Who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. We know that his truth endures to all generations. Consider what Jesus told the Jews in John's gospel. He tells them, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. His truth endures to all generation. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He endures through all generations. His truth endures. And his truth brings freedom, and the truth shall set you free. There is no greater freedom to experience than the freedom through Jesus Christ from the bondage of sin and the path to hell than to know Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. So what do we know about God in these verses that I've looked at, verse 3 and verse 5? Because basically those are the two in this psalm that tells us about who God is. What do we know about God? He is Lord. He is Lord and there is no other. He made us and not him, and us not him, and not ourselves. We didn't make ourselves. He is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth is eternally without fail. And his truth is eternally without fail. Those are the five things that we know of God. The second point that I have is that how do we respond in the knowledge of God? How do we respond? Well, let's look into verse 1. Told you we kind of got a little out of order. We'll go back to verse 1. How do we respond to our knowledge of God? The first, th- the first way we respond is to make a joyful shout. You know, we're always trying to tell everybody, be quiet, be quiet, be reverent. Yeah, okay, there's a place for that, but there's a place to shout. If somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that's not the time to be somber. That's the time to be rejoicing, to give a joyful shout. When we sing a line of a song that blesses our hearts, we can shout, amen, that's right. Woo! Scare people with that one. I had some people leave a choir one time because I wanted to go, woo! And they said, we're not doing that. (laughs) Woo! Bye-bye. Anyway, we're... (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. That's uh, got a little bit in the spirit, in, in the flesh right there. Uh, the first way we respond is to make a joyful shout. We make a joyful shout to the Lord. The joyful shout, one of the commentators wrote, the joyful shout includes the idea of triumph or a battle cry. Since God is great and greatly to be praised, we read that in Psalm 96.4, we are called to loud and proud expressions of joy as we begin our worship. We should come in excited. You know, 
We talked about the last month, we talked about having a different spirit. And God, Jesus Christ, put a child in front of them. And when, when kids experience something great, usually what's the first thing they do? They shout. They shout. They don't know no better to be quiet. That's okay. Don't know no better. Because sometimes there is a place for that response in the spirit of joyfulness. There's a place for that. Make a joyful shout. This is why I encourage music to open the service as joyful and jubilant. We are desiring to enter the presence of our victorious reigning king. He is risen. He is king. He is savior. He is a mighty warrior. He's never lost a battle. I mean, come on, guys. Some of y'all may not remember this. For some of y'all, y'all might be wrestling fans, okay? All right, wrestling fans. And back in the 90s, before wrestling started getting a little dirty, they started adding some stuff in there I didn't really like. Used to be this guy that'd come out and he had smoke and he'd breathe in that smoke, he'd breathe it out and he'd, and it was uh, Goldberg. Anybody remember Goldberg? Goldberg come down the ring, he had that undefeated streak, you know, he'd spear people and then he would lay them and he'd hit them with that move. I don't even know what it's called now, but anyway. And, and, and like you'd get all excited, man. I was pumped up to see him come out. You know, the fans were going wild. You know, he'd never lost for so long, all this kind of stuff. You know what? He eventually lost, okay? He eventually lost. But I'm going to tell you something. Jesus never has. Jesus never has. And never will. That's right, Jeff. And he never will. Some of y'all going to go, I'm going to go Google that. I'm going to look on YouTube to see this Goldberg guy. Anyway. <laughs> I like Goldberg. Anyway, uh, so anyway, he, he is victorious. He's never lost a battle, so we should be worshiping him. And in response to that, okay, we respond to the knowledge of God. We make a joyful shout. That's the first way we respond to that. The second way we respond is to serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Enter his courts with song. You know, every time I say that, it makes me think of the hymn. You know what I mean? If it does it to you, we'll sing it eventually. I'm sure it's probably one of the top rated ones. We'll sing it. So behind the action of jubilant, joyous praise should be that of a proper attitude. That of a proper attitude. To, to serve means to minister. To minister. So in worship, like the priest before the altar, we give ourselves to God. Similarly, Paul compares us to offer our, compels us, excuse me, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable service or ministry to Him. So when it says serve the Lord with gladness, it means minister before the Lord with gladness. Minister to someone. Care for them. Love them. Worship is our act of service to the Lord. And we are to minister in gladness, not in guilt or peer compulsion. We serve the Lord with gladness. And it should, it should be easy to serve the Lord with gladness because we know what he has done. He's done great things. So we serve him with gladness. The third way we respond is to sing as we enter his presence. There in verse 2. Come before his presence with singing. And we sing. This is different than our shout. Okay, this is different than our shout. It's different. The joyful shout is a call to worship or procession, while this is an offering of praise to his character and goodness that we have personally experienced. There are many ways to glorify God, but this way particularly is through song. 
And we could dive deep into what singing means within the church corporately, but this is not a direction of compelling toward a specific type of giving a praise or set of worship. That's not what this is about. This is just you coming into his presence with singing. This isn't a message to the whole church, although we as individuals are the church. So this is not the place for personal preference in worship. This is not a place of implementing yours and mine into the offering of praise. This is where the whole of the church are united in heart, soul, and voice in worship through song, giving, and submitting to the Lordship of Christ. When we come here, it's about a unifying voice, not about a preference. And I believe that's a problem. You want preference? Do it in your own time. You want preference? Do it in your car. You want preference? Do it at your house. But if you want unity of spirit and a lack of division of soul and, and a joyful shout to the Lord, come in here prepared to do what's in our bulletin. And don't leave here going, well, I didn't know that one. I didn't like that one. You pick it apart. Once you critique, you're not going to gain anything from it. But a critical spirit and a bad heart. When you get in your car, turn on Caleb. Sing what you want to sing. And when you come in here, let's sing what the Lord has given to the church. To glorify him in unity together. Let's do that. These beautiful songs, whether it be a contemporary newer song, the first song we sang, that's more of a, a contemporary hymn. And then these other songs that are so beautiful, so, so many people raising their hands, glorifying God, praising Him because the words are so good and they're accurate to the Word of God. That's the most important thing is that it's accurate to the Word of God. We can sing about emotionalism and do all this other kind of stuff and, and great, that's good. But it might not be what we're going to do right here, right now. There's 24 hours in a day Six days a week, and almost full seven, if you don't count the two hours we're here on Sunday, that you can do whatever please your little heart to glorify God with. But when we come in here, it's to unify the spirit of the church to give glory to our Savior who rules and reigns. Hey, sing it all out. Sing it all out. If you want to, if you got something special to your heart and you got a preferential song, hey, listen, we got you can sing a special music. I'm sure Donald would love for you to come up here and sing something with us. All right. So thankfully enter his gates. The fourth way to respond is to thankfully enter his gates. And our lives should be characterized by thankfulness. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, I'm not going to read all that scripture because we're already over time. And I'm trying to wrap it up. I'm almost to the fifth point. All right? Our lives should be characterized by thankfulness. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul writes of the consequences of not being thankful. There are many other things people choose to be, but specifically in 121 it is written, because although they knew God, they had a, a mental understanding, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Listen, we should be thankful for who God is. We should be thankful that God is Lord. We should be thankful that God is creator. We should be thankful that God is good. We should be thankful that God is merciful. We should be thankful that God is true. 
That should give us reason to praise and to be thankful. But so many times we get into this pity party, feeling sorry for ourselves. Look up. Quit looking inward. Look up. Look up to Christ. Look in His Word. Look for Christ. Look at Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Look at Him, and then you'll find what to be thankful for. See Him on the cross. See Him beaten and bruised. The stripes on His back for us. His nail-pierced hands and feet. And then think about it. And then think about how thankful you and I should be. We should be thankful. Trust me, I'm not saying you alone. Sometimes I get into those times, poor pitiful me. Man, I am blessed beyond measure. And even when it's hard for me, it was harder for Jesus on that cross. The fifth way we respond is to praise Him in His courts. One definition of praise is proclaiming the wonders of God. A second definition is praise is magnifying the works of a sovereign God. And then lastly, praise is translating all of who God is into words simple enough for man to understand. That's what praise is. So clearly for us, as we look at this today, it's kind of a meshing of all those together here in Psalm 100. But we look at that last part. It's a translating of all of who God is into words simple enough for man to understand. Lord, creator, good, merciful, true. It's who he is. And we bring that praise. And offering praise to God is what we do in public and private. Praise is what he deserves. And in both those situations, praise is telling God how good he is. How good he is. So who is our God? Who is our God? He is Lord. He is creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is creator. He is good. There's none good but God. He is merciful. He shows mercy forever. For his mercy endures forever, Psalm 136, 1 through 26. And he is true. He is true. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is true of who God is. And that's what He does. So how should we respond to knowing these things of Him? We should shout joyfully. We should serve gladly. We should sing triumphantly. We should thank Him and praise Him wholeheartedly. And in all of that, we are blessing His name. By us doing these things and how we respond, we are blessing the name of Jesus Christ. When we shout, when we serve, when we sing, when we thank, when we praise, we're blessing Him. Because we're recognizing Him for who He is and what He's done. And that blesses the name of Jesus. We need to be people who bless the name of Jesus. Not, not, not throw uh, not throw a bad name on his name. We need to bless his name. How do we do that? We live lives. We live lives that bring honor and glory to him. We live lives that bring honor and glory to him. So let us conclude with this thought to you all. Who is God or Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Is he Lord? 
The first thing it says, know that he, know that the Lord, he is God. Is he Lord of your life? Yes, he is Lord, but is he Lord of your life? Is he creator? Yes, he is creator. But are you allowing him to create things in your life that brings glory to himself and blesses you? Is he good? Absolutely he is good. The Bible tells us that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. You want good things? All good things come down from the Father of lights. He is good. He is good. He is merciful. He's a merciful God. And our mercies are new every morning. And I'm grateful for that. So we need to bless his name.